It's officially Pride Month. And when you make the decision to be vulnerable and proud, it's because you want to be your authentic self. You want to be free. But sometimes making that decision can end up costing you everything you've ever known. For my guest today, Mike Maishiro, his journey to his authentic self came with unexpected hurdles and losses. But self-love and freedom paired with strength in his faith, it proved that sometimes the reward is greater than the risk. You're listening to We Need to Talk. We need to talk. Mike Mayashiro, thank you so much for being on We Need to Talk. I have been wanting to chat with you for quite some time, so thank you for being here. Yes, I'm honored to be here. I've also, the feeling's mutual, so I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So we met, obviously, on Instagram, and we have this little group called Dumbledore's Army that you started <laughs> with a lot of, I love the title, I love the name, I was like, yes, 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 but I love that you created this space Um for a lot of progressive Christian voices that want to do good in the world. And that's what I was always so drawn to you and what you do on your social media platform. And I would just love to know a little bit more of your story, because I think for my listeners specifically, I do have a lot of progressive Christian voices that listen to this podcast, but I would love to know your story. I know it's been a year since you you came out, and I have many friends that are progressive Christians that when they made that decision to really be who God made them, they lost a lot. And you're very, very vulnerable and open about that. So I would just love for you to, to share uh, your journey and your story. Um, Yeah. I'm honored to be here. I've Melinda, I've been following you for a while. So, you know, I'm like, yeah, I didn't know if this would ever happen, but I'm like, this is awesome. I'm fine. Um, So I, you know, I, when I was four, my parents took me to a Baptist church for the first time. And I was told, on that Sunday school morning, all the things, sin, hell, heaven, Jesus, forgiveness, crucifixion. It was a lot to take in it for. And I said, yes, I was like, I'll take Jesus. I'd rather have this little ghost person living in me than go to this really fiery, tormenting place for the rest of eternity. So I entered the Christian world at that point and went in heart and went to private school, church three times a week, whatever, you know, all the things. And um, when I was 10 was the moment I consciously recognized the thing that was different about me that made being around other boys difficult and confusing and made me embarrassed for the ways that I related to the girls and want to do girl things. And, you know, uh, this was the nineties, right? So the gender thing was so much more like barbaric back then. But anyway, um, when I was 10, I was like, Oh, I'm gay. That's what this is. And it was a terrifying moment for me because I was pretty, I mean, I was heavily entrenched in Baptist culture, like evangelicalism, right? So I knew I couldn't be gay. I knew this was like a horrible, evil, abominable, perverted, perverted, whatever thing. So that was a terrifying moment. Shoved myself deep into the closet at 10. I've consciously thought like, am I going to marry a woman and just fake it for the rest of my life? Am I going to be single? Like what's going to happen? I don't know. God, thank God. I don't have to figure that out right now did the Christian thing for a long time. And then when I was 18, I had this radical experience. And so depending on people's backgrounds and, you know, denominations and whatever in the Christian world, what I'm about to say is going to land somewhere strange, I'm sure, polarizing. But in my Baptist conservative, you know, right wing upbringing, I had this really dramatic emotional experience at church one Mm -hmm. Sunday morning where 
the way I used to tell the story before I deconstructed was that I, I met God. That's the language I would use. Now, however people want to interpret that, like, please put that wherever that needs to go in your worldview and all that. And I'm totally good at that. But from what I understood, like, <clears throat> oh, this is God I'm encountering, right? And I didn't have language for this at the time. But anyway, I had a couple of experiences like that. The second time this happened, God explicitly communicated to me that they wanted me to be gay. Mm. And I knew that God wasn't allowed to tell me that. Hmm. I was really awkward. But it also was like undeniable. Like I couldn't argue with what was happening. Um, and I was very like distraught. I was also really thankful and felt like it was like a very contradictory experience. I was disappointed and like confused because I wanted God to just fix me and make me right, right? Make me acceptable, make me the thing that I needed to be in order to succeed and belong in the world that I valued. Um, but in the, on the other hand, the beautiful part of it was like, oh, my environment, the church, leaders, family, whatever, these people don't accept me, don't love me, can't, whatever, but God does. Wow, that's really helpful, right? So there was like this contradictory thing that I got to like walk out from that point on. But fundamentally, there was something solid that got locked in. Yeah. God loved me. God accepted me. I was good there. And that like fundamentally mattered, right? So fast forward 14 years. I had a few more experiences like that, and I continued to stay in the closet. I went to Bethel Church in Redding, California. <clears throat> Again, depending on your audience, like that's going to be a really polarizing. <laughs> I moved to Redding in 2009 because of some intense spiritual experiences I was having that, you know, the environment that I came from and the people that I left behind, like they didn't have answers for me. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. But Bethel was speaking a very particular brand of theology and mm -hmm. spirituality that I resonated with. And that felt like it was permission and like validation for what was happening to me that I didn't have answers for. So went to Reading, went to Bethel, was there for 12 and a half years. I did first and second year in their ministry school. I got kicked out of school on the last day um, because I was gay. Someone outed me and I didn't know that. And then there was this really awkward conversation that ultimately <laughs> I found out seven hours before our graduation ceremony that I wouldn't be graduating. And it was like really painful, like kind of traumatizing, right? And um, shocking and I wasn't expecting it. And the way the whole thing got handled was really clunky and awkward and costly. So a few months later, like we worked it out. I got put on this purity plan, you know, this is my version of conversion therapy, right? I had to go yeah. to the purity, sexual purity group. I had to get counseling, had to get some Sozos, which was the inner healing ministry at Bethel. Um, anyway, so that was a journey, you know. Um, I didn't understand how dehumanizing and like harmful that was until after coming out, but went through that. I got hired on staff at Bethel, worked there for six years, started teaching in the school I got kicked out of, started leading mission trips and taking interns from the school and then started traveling and speaking. I was like the teacher on discerning of spirits and kind of built a brand in the ministry world around that whole subject. So I started traveling and speaking and it was amazing. And my career and my life was taking off exactly in the direction that I was hoping for. And it was profound, but I would every once in a while have these experiences with God where God is affirming me as a gay man and yeah. God wouldn't let this go, wouldn't leave this subject alone. And I needed to not open that door because everything was working, you know? And then right before the pandemic, it was 2020, some things had led up to, I was literally watching Miss Americana, Taylor Swift's uh, documentary on Netflix, and she goes hard on gay rights yeah. and advocating for the queer community. And something happened. Like I, I would describe that as a spiritual experience. I felt the Christian word would be conviction, right? I felt like yeah. the onset of deep conviction. I knew it was around the gay thing. I knew Taylor knew something that I didn't. She was touching something that I hadn't and she was right and I didn't know what to do. So I ignored it. Two weeks later, I had another similar experience, not with Taylor Swift, with like the Bible, 
like a story in Acts where Peter goes on a roof, falls into a trance, yeah. the sheet from heaven comes down, right? Don't call anything unclean that I've made clean. I know whatever this is moment, this moment is happening is the same as the thing that with Taylor Swift. This is about the gay thing. Is God telling me being gay is acceptable? I don't know what to do with that. Three weeks later, another moment happened in the same intense nature. And it, it was that moment that I was like, oh, I think this is God. I think, you know, this is beyond me. And that was a really pivotal moment in my life. That was the experiential moment, the straw that broke the camel's back where yeah. I decided like, I can't keep doing this. I can't keep being platformed by an institution that is overtly anti-gay, right? Like they yeah. have a whole ex-gay ministry there. I had subscribed to that whole rhetoric for years, right? And I was part yes. of leadership in that world. And like my voice was like amplified and platformed by this space. And so I just had so much guilt and sorrow and like conflict in myself for being a part of all of this. And I had ignored it so well up to this point that I was just starting to unravel in a dramatic fashion, but all the while also like having to figure out how to accept myself here, how to like recover from the internalized heterosexism I had been indoctrinated with my entire life. Yeah. Right. So how to humanize me. So I immediately just started ordering books and watching YouTube series and like listening to podcasts and just finding anyone who is advocating for and affirming the queer community specifically regarding Christianity. Yeah. I was like shocked at like all the work that had been done and the astuteness of the people that were engaging in this conversation. I was embarrassed that they were asking questions I'd never considered in my life. Mm. It was like shocking and amazing. And I just on an intellectual level felt embarrassed for all of the Christians I was a part of. I was like, we are not doing our due diligence. We have not exercise integrity around this we have not honestly approached this conversation this just on an intellectual level this is embarrassing and yeah. we are corrupt and then let alone all the other things that were coming into this so anyway um started coming out to people talked to some leaders of bethel those conversations did not go well of course um there was almost zero, eh, there was zero listening that took place and i had to learn how to figure out the language for the conflict that i kept encountering but there was no listening that was taking place and I realized finally after like the fourth or fifth conversation with the leader, like, oh, you're not listening to mm. me. You're just letting me talk. And then you're telling me what I need to think after this conversation. Mm. Not helpful. Right. So I had to like learn how to advocate for myself and like how to get my needs met, how to find safety, how to establish new boundaries in old familiar relationships that I had betrayed myself with by entering into to begin with that I didn't know any better about. So that's been a huge mess to have to like detangle from and, you know, so much pain and like emotional like turmoil on both ends of this dynamic. And I was also like still in public Christian ministry while this was happening. So I had a whole team of people that I had to like figure out how to like move forward in this because this was like in a deeply personal journey, but also like profoundly impacting my message and my calling and, you know, the impact that I was having with the platform that I had. So, right. um, yeah. Anyway, so then that culminated in me moving to Nashville. I had to get away from Reading and I found a mentor out here I needed help with and help from. And so I came out here and I've been here for like almost two years now and came up <sighs> a year ago. That's that's the short version. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I have ha I had so many thoughts as you were telling me that story. Um, I was even like taking notes as you were writing. Nice. One, and I, I just always feel like I have to apologize for what so many of my... LGBTQ friends have gone through in the church mm. and I feel like it has been a responsibility of mine to be very loud and proud about affirming them because I grew up in a very progressive Christian household oh. 
and I was very lucky to. So I actually never went through the whole deconstruction process because my life was already deconstructed. Right. Um, my dad wasn't a churchgoer, but my mom was very much so um, a churchgoer. But I was exposed to her gay friends at a very young age. So it was always normalized for me. Mm. And it was never, and I feel very blessed and very lucky to have had that be my experience. And even the church that I went to, there that was never a talking point. I mean, mm. I went to a black church, so we were focused on some other stuff <laughs> in terms of social justice, right? <laughs> but it just, it was never an issue. And so when I, and I talk about this a lot, but when I went to college, I went to Azusa Pacific University, it's conservative Christian college. I was like, what is going on? <laughs> like I was so like just taken aback because none of their understanding of theology, none of their understanding of what I of the Jesus I knew and the God I knew, I was like, who is this God you're praying to? Who's this Jesus that you know? Cause wow. like, this is not at all what I grew up believing. And yeah. I always have approached everything from a place of love and empathy. So I'm just, I'm always so just remorseful because I wish, I wish that you didn't have to go through what you went through mm. because I know that, I mean, I say I know that God wouldn't want you to have experienced that, but I think going through that made probably made your faith even stronger, to be honest, which is crazy to think about um, that you had to go through so much pain. But, you know, there are a couple things that you said, and obviously looking into how politics are right now, there's such an attack on the LGBTQ community. Just they're always picking somebody to, to attack. And obviously <laughs> currently... There, it's really the transgender community, but before that, it was even you know gay rights to be married and all of that. But you said that you realized at the age of ten that you knew who you were. How does it make you feel when you hear people, specifically right leaning, claim that kids of that age don't know who they are in terms of identity? Well, I mean, it makes me roll my eyes. Like, yeah. that's not true. It's absurd. Um, like, I knew I was gay before I was 10. It, I was 10 when I realized the language we use in our culture to talk about what I was, right? Yeah. Um, so, I, I hear a lot of people talk about how they knew they were gay when they were five. I'm like, you know what? That's true. I identify with that. I knew. I just didn't have language. I didn't understand, right? Um, so, when people say you can't know at that age, I'm like, no, nah, it's not true. I absolutely... Like, you know, you right. could, if you just like would get them out of their straight privilege, like blindness and have them yes. recognize what they knew about their own experience and their journey. Like, you know, you could tell you were into whatever, you know, however it is you're inclined. Like, you know, totally. and it did, like, especially for someone like me, despite your better judgment and what you've been told is upright or good. Like I was the most devout and like committed Christian that I knew. Like my Christian friends looked up to me for being the Christian dude. And despite all of my intentionality and effort, I couldn't shake this. I couldn't overcome my own orientation, you know? So if people say that, I don't hear it a ton at this point. I don't, maybe because of how, like, gleaned my algorithm has become. But um, if people were to say that, I mean, I would laugh. It's not even, that's not valid. That's not a valid yeah. point. That's not true. It's just literally inaccurate. It is. And because I mean, I remember my first crush, I was four <laughs> yeah. and it was on a boy. Right. And I was I had been boy crazy my whole life, you know. And so I knew that. And so when I hear people say that, I'm like, of course, because you, even growing up, like, like, oh, that's, you know, her boyfriend or that's his girlfriend. We are pushing that yeah. that narrative on kids 
at sure. a very early age. Yeah. And so to then turn around and say that they don't know, it I also it's laughable to me because I'm like, mm, you guys had crushes when you were a certain age and you know who you have a crush on, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I was just curious how that makes you feel because when I hear it, I'm like, you're just trying to push a certain narrative for sure. It's, yeah. it's, it's just not the reality. Right. The other thing that it just really upsets me. And we know that there's been a lot of um, legislation being passed and people trying to pass it in terms of affirming care for specifically transgender kids. And, um, you know, I think that they'll probably make the argument that they're trying to protect the kids and doing what's right for them, right? But what I always find so interesting, because I know you brought up that you kind of went through a version of conversion therapies, why do they not view that as harmful when actually giving your child affirming care is letting them be themselves so that they can be happy and free. I feel like conversion therapy, and I know so many people that went to pray the gay away camps, went through conversion therapy, and they were miserable because they were trying, basically trying to be changed to live a lie. And that is so much more harmful than just giving them the space and the love to be themselves. So again, how do you feel when you hear those conversations being had because it it upsets me greatly. Yeah, <laughs> it really totally. does. Yeah. yeah, it's very deeply upsetting because first of all, it's like obviously it's hypocritical. Um, yes, it's not. It's not true. Like it's a tr- they're troping children and using them as <laughs> like a, a smoke screen for a whole yeah. other mode of agendas and priorities. Um, and so to like that in and of itself is already gross and harmful. But to prey on a marginalized, vulnerable group of people to use them and like discard their lives and their experiences for your political or monetary or whatever reasons is so villainous, right? Like yes. that's dark. That is twisted and evil. Um, and so like to take away the things that we've actually like invested time and energy and research and people have dedicated their lives to getting us here to caring for people like this because they're not just random like they are a portion of our population and have been here yes. forever right like to take that away from them to demonize this stuff to, like it's just villain energy you're like what is this is crazy so like i've moved so fast and done so much work both internally and then throughout the political and intellectual spheres um theologically like there's been so much change in what I've been told is good and true and right in the world that I can sometimes vaguely remember where I came from and how and why we thought the way we did and but a lot of it I'm like there's so much fundamental underpinning of like a difference of approaching life and viewing humanity and ethics even like the fundamental underpinnings are so different that like it's like I don't even know where to start (laughs) to try and get on the same page with the person with the people who think this is a valid logical progression of thought it's like we are fundamentally disagreeing about what words like goodness and love and well-being and truth like those are big deals and ideas and that's where we have already derailed so when it starts coming to these specific victims that we're creating right like we're not even having the same conversation anymore so for me, it's like the intellectual side is like, man, there's such a dis- like a disconnect. And then obviously on an emotional side, it's like, how do you not see the human beings whose lives you are hurting, you are inhibiting, you're restricting, you are ending with this kind of like rhetoric or legislation? It's like so sick. I think a lot of those because most of these people are coming from a privileged existence and so insulated from 
you know, the things we're actually talking about, they can't identify with, they don't get it. They don't, they haven't even experienced the empathy side of humanizing the people who are being mostly impacted by this stuff. And I had to go through my version of that, you know, but coming out as a gay man in the context and at the age that I was at, like forced me to have to learn real quick about my own privilege and ignorance Mm -hmm. and like all that stuff. And then becoming aware of how people around me have continued to stay in that is such a costly space to stay ignorant in, you know, but anyway, so. No, I, I, I love that explanation. And I was also thinking, because, I mean, you came from the evangelical space, so I feel like you're actually in a very good position to explain to others how they think, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's where, I wouldn't say that I fall short because I, I went to school with a lot of them, <laughs> but I didn't grow up with that. So yeah. it did take me a while to understand like, oh, this is fabricated fear. This is how you were told. Like, basically, I feel like with evangelicals, when you go into the church space, you're entering into an abusive relationship. That's how they present God and present Jesus. Like, if you don't do this, you're going to burn in hell for all of eternity. I mean, is that not abuse? I don't know what is. Right. right? Yeah. So you operate from this place and then you think you think that you're operating from a place of love when you're telling someone else that they're going to burn in hell. I'm trying to save you. I'm trying to keep you from burning. And it's it's mind-boggling to me how they can't take a step back and realize, one, how ridiculous that sounds, but two, that's not love. Yeah. That's not love at all. Right. And I love, I actually really love what you've been doing on your social media in posting the exchanges that you're having with people. And yes, I'm not going to lie, I get a kick out of a lot of them. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, I do. But you are showing what it is to love your neighbor. And I think that that is so important that even when you are being approached with so much hate and... um, opposition you're choosing to engage in such a positive and loving way and at the end you always thank them and I just think that that's so beautiful why did you choose to take that approach <laughs> that's a good question I probably have a couple of reasons I have the let's start with the pettier reason the pettier reason I've chosen to approach these people in this I'm way. all for a good petty so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean on a Okay, so I'm I'm kind of joking, and it's it is there is pettiness here, um, but this has become a functional way that I've figured out how to manage the onslaught of hate and mm. absurdity and bigotry and ignorance that comes into my DMs and my comment section, or whatever, on a regular basis, right? Like at first, it was overwhelming, and I had insecurities and like such a lack of like practice in working with this stuff at that level, because like coming out as a gay person in this context is a really vulnerable experience, right? It's not just, yeah. we're just talking ideas. We're like, I'm talking about <laughs> who I am as a person and something fundamental about me. And then we're arguing about that. Like that's painful. And it's, it was really hard to separate that for a while. So now, like I've had so many people say crazy stuff to me that I could, if I went back and pulled that stuff in, you know, I wasn't even talking to those people. I just blocked them immediately, whatever. Right. right. <clears throat> now this feels like a constructive way to, place the trolls and the haters somewhere in my life. We'll have a little exchange. I'll block you because clearly you're not, we're not having a conversation. I get to move on with my life. I don't have to think about you ever again. Yeah. I'm moving on, right? It's become functional for my mental health. This is where I, how I've been able to like place this and like get closure and move forward. It actually really works for me. So there's That's that. Awesome. 
um, there's pettiness in there somewhere. Like I do toy with them sometimes, which to me, I actually see as a sign of growth. Like I am actually not affected by what these people are saying. Hmm. Um, I think it's funny. I think it's absurd. I think it's laughable and peculiar. I'm like, do you like, it just feels like a joke. And like, I'm, I'm in an experiment. Like there've got to be hidden cameras somewhere. This is not really happening. Right. So that part feels petty. The other reason behind why I approach these conversations the way that I've chosen to do is I am currently at this point, and I don't want to be committed to the statement. I mean, it's going to sound derogatory, and I don't mean it to be disrespectful. I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but I understand how it will be offensive to people I'm about to talk about. Indoctrinated evangelicals. At this point, I view as wounded people. Um, mentally. I don't think I don't think that's derogatory at all. I think it's an accurate statement. And I would I would not have said this a couple of years ago, right? Because yeah. I was I w- I am one of those people. I'm a recovering wounded evangelical. But at this point, the gospel of evangelicalism I think is a wound in our culture. Mm. This is like the gospel in evangelical in the evangelical world is a threat. Like you said, it is. It's a threat and it's a wound. And people are walking around scarred and wounded from this perpetuated. I want to say fantasy or delusion of what this Christian empire could look like in the world. And we've got branches like Christian nationalism, right? All the other crazy stuff that comes out of this space. But when these people show up with this, I mean, it's the same tired, like 13 ideas. There's nothing new. There's nothing interesting. It's, <laughs> it's all boring. specific. <laughs> because like, yeah, they just, you can see the progression of how some yes. of these, they've tried to like move forward and evolve in the ways that they can like demonize and, and, silence and erase queer people yeah there's like 13 things that they all just say on repeat you know um and so it's not interesting i don't feel it like stimulated or inspired i don't feel compelled i'm not trying to change any of their minds they enter the space i'm like oh here's another wounded person do i want to engage and i get to make that choice and i do and i don't or whatever but um the reason i've chosen to approach it this way is these wounded people these victims where are they gonna go Mm. what's the solution for these? They're still people, right? They're still humans. They still are part of our world. So it's easy to like demonize them and dehumanize them and like erase them in the same ways that I'm confronting they've done to me. I'm like, what's the better way, right? What does love look like here? And I don't owe this to to my abusers, right? Being a queer person who's uniquely been victimized by this group of people, I have to like care for myself and make sure that I'm not slipping back into some other weird enlightened closet, right? Like I'm very vigilant about making sure that I'm not, negotiating with that but big picture i'm looking down the road you know decades down the road in the work that i'm doing i don't want to just help outline in more bold font the lines that we're drawing between each other we have to get to wherever we're going that's going to be better for everyone together like we're gonna have to work with these wounded people Mm -hmm. so the reason i like share these horrible conversations or embarrassing conversations or absurd conversations i have with these wounded indoctrinated evangelicals is I would like for just whoever's paying attention to just get more and more informed on how this conversation goes, what's coming up for these people. Cause if I do it enough, everyone's going to recognize patterns. I won't need to have to point them out. It'll just become common, right? You'll just understand like they're all wounded and stunted in these very particular ways. They cannot humanize people in these particular areas. They are disqualified from being human in these particular aspects of humanity, Hmm. right? Hmm. It's just, they're numb and cauterized and just stuck there. So I want to like, at least while they're with me, show whatever care I'm capable of offering, but mostly expose where this wound is coming from and how it's impacting all of these victims, not any one of these individuals. 
I'm, and I don't know what the end of that result is, but I'm hoping there's a more constructive offering to this general conversation we're still having. Yeah, and that was my next question. Like, do you think that there's any way to heal those wounds? I mean, we obviously see, like, the whole deconstruction movement that's happening, yeah, and I yeah. think it's really encouraging seeing how many people are getting out of their bubbles and starting to ask questions and realizing, oh, shoot, everything I've been told my whole life is actually kind of wrong. <laughs> you know, I think that that's great, yeah. but... Super fun. Do you think that there is hope for those really deeply wounded people like that are projecting their own self-hate onto others? Because that's yeah. what I think a lot of it is also. It comes oh, from sure. a lot of self-hate. Because, And I've said this before, but like you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself. Because the whole yeah. thing is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. So if right. you're missing half of the equation, <laughs> you're never going to be able to do it, you know? Yeah, totally, for sure. Um, yes, my first immediate answer is, of course, of course there's hope for them. There has to be. If there's not hope for them, there's not hope for any of us. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. um, I have to vigilantly work to not perceive these people who reflect and, and embody the place that I was harmed and brutalized by, right, in all the different ways. I have to continue to humanize these people. And I don't do it perfectly all the time. I definitely make, you know, I slip up and, like, easily turn them into an other and whatever. And so I have to work at not engaging in that dynamic because it's so tempting and easy and marketable and, right? Like people love it. Yeah. But there's, and there is something constructive and healing about needing to do that. So I have to navigate, right? That whole thing. But sure. there has to be hope for them because like, this is awkward, but like Lord of the Rings is coming up. Like, you know, Frodo having compassion on Smeagol or Gollum. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like Sam doesn't get it, wants to just kill the thing, kill the dude, get him out of here, whatever. And you watch Frodo continue to make compromise after compromise for this deep, this villain who's walking with them. But at some point, Frodo, Frodo confesses, like, I have pity on him because I see myself in mm. him. I understand how he got there. I understand. Like, this could be me. The only difference between me and him is time, is choices. Like, he's not, like, fundamentally separate from me. Like, he just made his choice, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, for me, in some ways, I was these people. I was never this, like, rude and belligerent and obnoxious and, like, violating uh, to anyone, regardless of my beliefs. But I believed this stuff they're saying to me, right? I had the same, like, indoctrination and, like, whatever. So, um, in some ways, I'm like, there has to be hope for them. Because <laughs> yeah. how yeah. could I have gone on the journey I went on, right? Like, yeah. And then if I don't think there's hope for them, then, yeah, there's no point in doing any work to try and, like, integrate them sure. into for the sure. beautiful future we all get to go into, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, I love, I actually love that Lord of the Rings example. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, and it's... It, the irony in the whole situation is because a lot of these conservative Christian evangelicals, you know, that they, you hear them saying like Christianity is being attacked and blah, 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 <laughs> yada, yada, yada. And again, I've said this so many times and I'm just waiting for the light bulb to, to turn on for some of them. But if you're feeling that way, how has the light bulb not turned on and the, just the switch where you realize, oh, this is how all of these marginalized groups have been feeling, even though their feeling of oppression is completely not warranted. But granted, <laughs> if you're feeling this way, how have you not like come to the conclusion of understanding it and, and be able to create empathy and be like, oh, how I'm feeling right now is exactly how they've been feeling this entire time. Like, I just, I don't know what it's going to take for that empathy to just kick in. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I don't want this to be the answer, and I, I'm hoping this can't be the reason or the hope, but I think most people I know who have chosen, who were raised in the evangelical conservative world, right, that I was raised in, the reason people like me 
choose out of that space because it's such a high cost to do it is because something greater was threatened, was lost, was hurt than the benefit they're getting from playing by the rules and belonging to such a harmful, exclusive, judgmental group. Usually like someone has to go through something horrific or tragic in order to wake them up and get them to admit there's actually more going on here than I just want my pastor and my deacons and my, my tea party people to approve of me. Like, something more fundamental needs to be shaken for them. And I've seen a lot of people who have chosen their way out of that space is most of us have that in common. I'm like, we can't be trauma bonding on our tragedies that caused us to be ethically responsible, right? That cannot be the reason for all of us right now. I think that's where we are. I, Mm -hmm. I imagine down the road, especially as generations die out and whatever, like that will change. But I think, you know, for most of us, the key at this point, the variable for a lot of people for choosing out is because they've had some level of proximity to harm that's being done. That's inexcusable. Like it doesn't matter how you spin the Bible. It doesn't justify the actual harm I'm witnessing, right. I'm experiencing or seeing firsthand. Like I can't sleep at night. I can't reconcile this. So I have to choose out of this in some way. Right. And it's, it's unfortunate that it has to get to a certain point because even in some conversations that I've had with people that are currently deconstructing what they allowed up to the point where they decided to, to leave. I'm, I'm baffled. I'm like, Mm -hmm. but you let this, 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 and this go. (laughs) And this was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like it's, it's wild to me, but look, I know everyone in their own time and we're all on our own journeys and I get it, but I am always surprised to what like the tipping point is for certain people. Like they will ignore racism. They will ignore misogyny, pedophilia, you know, even LGBTQ harm, but then something, and I don't want to say, I don't want to ever diminish somebody else's story, but Sometimes it seems like something so small will be like, now I'm done now. It's like, but all of this other stuff just happened. Right. You know? Totally. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It, it's interesting, but it, it, each person has their own story and own journey. So Yeah, and I think that's actually a big part of it is when you step out of it and you do the work and you look back, it's like we, we approach it logically, right? Like how do you make sense of this? But for those people who are going through it or having to make those sacrifices it's not based on logic it's the story we've been telling ourselves this whole time right like i don't want to admit this but this is part of my own like recovery process was like i excused racism and misogyny misogyny i don't know about pedophilia i don't know if i was aware of some of that i don't know that i wanted to be aware that i was willing to be right like i didn't see those things and on this side of having done the, the work i'm like oh my god like you know, it's just, it's become so obvious. I didn't want to see those things. Right. And so I think my point in that is like, this isn't a logical process for any of us. We are not logical beings. It's coming out of the emotional narrative that we've invested in and that we feel attached to. And because, so the whole intersectional identity component shows up. You're like, oh, we understand why people make the choices generally that they seem to do or what sets them off because of the story they're telling themselves and who they are within that narrative, you know? And so if we can approach it from that place, rather than just burying people with logic, I think we'll probably get a lot more results in the conversations that we're kind of having. Um, Because it's coming from the narrative that each individual is walking around with, not all the proof and facts and statistics and logic that become so obvious after, right? Yes, absolutely. And I think the other thing also is like, I joke about like, how did you not see all this stuff? But when people do eventually arrive to this point of realizing at the end of the day, this is just about loving each other, 
we have to give them grace because I think so many people are very quick to, to say those things like, well, how did you not see this before? How did you take a minute and just be happy that they've arrived at that point, you know? And I think that we should be celebrating that more. It may take others longer and they may have, again, like you said, I was witness to certain things and I just, or I didn't want to see them. Everybody is on their own journey and their own path. And I do, I've, I do have hope that we will all end up in the same space together of really trying to live out Jesus's words of just loving each other. Cause people make it so complicated. That's what I've realized. And it really doesn't have to be. It doesn't yeah. have to be complicated. It's not hard to love people. It takes effort to actively oppose them at every single <laughs> turn. I mean, my goodness. Like, right? It takes effort to do that. No, you're right. That's that true. When you could just live and love and like be happy and but no I'm gonna choose to do this and like make my platform about this or every time I open my mouth I'm saying something hateful I'm just like I don't know why you're choosing this but with all that being said Mike I am I'm very grateful to know you I love the work that you're doing I think your voice is essential and I'm very glad that we were able to sit down and chat for a little bit could you let everyone know where they can follow you and keep up with the work that you're doing yeah thanks for sure um thanks for asking I think probably one of the most, the pettiest and most exciting place to follow me is Instagram. <laughs> so my handle is just at Mike Mayashiro. Um, that's where probably most of the drama and most of my energy goes is like just the things I'm publishing on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm on TikTok. I'm on Facebook. I'm on YouTube. I have a YouTube channel that I also have a podcast and I publish interviews there, um, which by the way, Melinda. I got um, you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I have a website, just MikeMyShow.com. All of that is just Mike Show. My first and last name is going to get you to all those places, but Instagram is kind of my living room, if you will. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was a pleasure chatting Thanks with Thanks for having you. me. Yeah, Absolutely. likewise, for sure. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening to We Need to Talk. Make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. And remember that everything begins with the conversation. We'll see you next week. We need to talk.